The Old Testament lesson for the Nativity of our Lord is from Exodus chapter 40. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put, the ark, put, into, put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the first chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Something seems to have gone wrong. The people of Israel were listening to God's instructions at the foot of Mount Sinai. There they were, having left Egypt, wandering towards the wilderness, making their way to the land flowing with milk and honey. And in the last eight or so chapters of Exodus, the people of Israel are constructing the tabernacle. 
the tent of meeting, which is supposed to do just what, it name, what its name says. It's supposed to be a place where they can go and meet with God. They listen to God's instructions down to every detail. And some of the details, if you read the book of Exodus, they'll make you kind of doze off a little bit. These details, a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver, and each curtain 28 cubits long and four cubits broad. These details that if you paid too close attention to them, you'd lose your mind. And on and on and on. Have you ever tried to read the end of Exodus or the beginning of Leviticus? It can be mind-numbing, and yet, and yet, they followed all of those instructions to a letter. They did it. They did what God gave them to do. In fact, God had asked the people to bring all kinds of stuff, materials, for the tabernacle. Gold and jewelry and fabric and wood and so on. And, And they encountered a problem as the people were bringing their stuff for the construction of the tent of meeting. The people brought too much. Here's what it says. Moses says the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. More than enough. What a great problem to have. To have more than enough because everyone is so willingly, voluntarily, generously contributing. They built the tabernacle. They followed the instructions down to the letter. They dedicated it. They said the prayers. And Exodus, the book of Exodus is about to end. We read from chapter 40. This morning, it's the last chapter in the book of Exodus. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then Moses couldn't go in. The glory was too much. Moses couldn't go in. All of this effort, all of this attention to detail, all of this time, all of this trouble building the tent of meeting and they can't even use it to meet with God. It seems as though something has gone wrong. And that's the end of the book of Exodus. That's really a great description of the problem that humanity suffers. God has drawn near. It was the Lord himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who came down in his glory in the tent of meeting, and no one could come near him. He came near to them, but they had to stay away. Even Moses, this man who was God's man, had to stay away. Sinners must remain at a distance from this all-glorious, all-powerful, perfect, holy God. The psalmist asks the question in Psalm 24. David goes like this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? It's an honest question. Who, Who can draw near to God? David goes on and answers the question. He who has clean hands... And a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That narrows the list quite a bit, doesn't it? Would any of you claim to have pure hands, clean hands, and a pure heart? I hope not. I hope that you're honest enough about yourselves to recognize that you would not be able to draw near to the tent of meeting. You would not be able to ascend the hill of the Lord. On your own, you would be consumed by fire. In fact, that is just what happens when people draw near to God presumptuously. So the beginning of the book of Leviticus, which follows right after Exodus, establishes the priesthood, which was God's way of dealing with this problem. There were very specific rituals, a kind of cleansing that was to take place, particular clothing, anointing with oil that would make Aaron 
and his sons fit to go for a time into the tent of meeting. Fit for a time so that the glory of God would not kill them. They had to follow those instructions carefully. Their hearts had to be right, otherwise they would be consumed. And that's exactly what happened. Chapters 1 through 9 of Leviticus, bear with me, chapters 1 through 9 of Leviticus are instructions of what the priests are to do. And they did that. And Aaron went into the tent of meeting. But then in the very next chapter, Leviticus 10, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, don't follow the rules. They enter into the tent of meeting without pure hearts and clean hands. They come on their own terms. They come thinking they can draw near to God as they see fit, and they're consumed by fire, literally consumed by fire. And Aaron and Moses have to figure out what to do, how they're going to get the bodies out of the tent of meeting, and how they're going to handle God's anger over this presumption. It's a dreadful problem to have. It's a problem that we, we cannot solve on our own. That God draws near to us, but we have to stay away from him. Now notice that this is not the problem that the world thinks that it has. When the world thinks about its relationship to God, when we, according to our flesh, think about our relationship to God, here's the way that the problem is usually framed. God is distant, somewhere out there, and I have to go looking for him. I have to go and find him. I have to draw near to him. He's trying to stay away from me. I have to seek him out. I have to grab a hold of him. I have to make him my own. So think about the way that people do that in their lives. Pursuing pleasures. Pursuing the delights of the flesh, things that give satisfaction for a moment. Material things, money, treasures in this earth. Things that seem to last for a little while. That's one way of chasing after God. Maybe that will give me eternal life, people think. Like that rich fool who built extra barns to hold all of his wealth. That's one of the ways that people go looking for God, thinking they can find him. Maybe it's in looking for a spiritual experience. Some stirring of emotions. Some people look inside of themselves. Maybe if I dig deeply into the recesses of my heart, there I will find God. Maybe if I have the right experience, the right feelings, the right emotions, then I will have accomplished this goal of finding God. Sometimes it is in philosophy or in lofty thoughts. So you have to be really, really intelligent and you have to get everything sorted out and the right ideas in your head and then, then, you will have captured God. That is what the world thinks. It's up to you, they say. You have to go looking for God. You have to go find him. You have to make him your own. But see, that is not the way the Bible describes the problem. Paul says to us in Romans, don't say to yourselves, who will ascend into heaven? But instead, what does the scripture say? The Lord is near you. His word is near you in your mouth, and in your heart. It's not a problem of you having to go and draw near to God. It is a problem of when God draws near to you, what will happen to you? That's the problem. That's the question. What will happen to you? It is not we who appeared to call on God, but it is God who has appeared to save us. It is not we who have poured out our hearts to God, but God who poured out his Spirit on us. If God does not draw near to us, and then somehow work a way to draw us close to him, we are lost. And this is precisely what he does. 
It's like having a broken relationship. Think about any relationship in your life that has grown bitter or that has had some bitterness in it. You can imagine how that feels. Something was said that was regrettable. Something painful happened. And now there's distance. Distance and all kinds of time spent in your own mind, mulling over what happened, creating a story, getting angry and frustrated and full of contempt. You can imagine how that goes. And then the phone rings, and you see that it's that person's name on the phone, and you think to yourself, I don't want to talk to him. I know what he's going to say. I know what he's like. I know how this has gone before. I'm going to just hit the ignore button. He can leave a message. Maybe I'll listen to it. But when you listen to it, it makes you even more angry. Isn't that how it goes so often with broken relationships? That's just how it is between us and God according to the flesh. He calls, and we want to hit the ignore button. I know what it's like talking to that guy. He's holy and good. He's perfect, and I'm not. He tells me that my sins are going to land me in hell. He brings fire on people, after all. Why would I want to talk to him? And so the temptation is to stay away. But God is not content to have us hit the ignore button. He is not content to call and have us just pretend like he's not there. He's not content to come walking in the cool of the garden and to see Adam and Eve hiding because they are ashamed of their nakedness. He's not content to leave them there hidden apart from him. So what does he do? Well, he keeps drawing near. He doesn't stay at a distance. He draws near and nearer and nearer and nearer until Christmas morning when he draws so near that he takes on human flesh and blood. It's not just a cute baby that was laid in the manger, but it was God himself, veiled in human flesh. So veiled, in fact, that they didn't recognize him No one knew it was God laying there in the manger. Unless the angels had told the shepherds, unless the angels had told Mary and Joseph, they would not have known. So close, so veiled, that it would not kill anyone. It wouldn't hurt anyone. In fact, it would be precious. It would be a treasure. God places himself in our midst, so humble and veiled, that we do not run away. Why would we? He's just a baby. We do not run away. He's just like us. He's our brother. He shares our temptations. He shares our weaknesses. He shares our mortality. Why would we run away? And then, what does he do? With that perfect human flesh, with those clean hands and that pure heart, Jesus gets down into the waters of the Jordan River where all of the sinners are getting baptized, and he joins their number. Jesus, who was perfect, becomes the worst of sinners. Not because of any sins that he commits on his own, but because he takes all of our sins on himself. All of our uncleanness, all of our impurity, all of the things for which we deserve the fire and wrath of God, he takes them into himself. And then watch what he does. He goes to the holy place, that place where Nadab and Abihu got burned up. He goes to the holy place, the cross, On that hill, he ascends on that hill, and there he is nailed to the cross, and the fire of God devours him. The glory descends in a cloud, and the fire is there at the sight of the cross, and Jesus is consumed. The disciples, you remember, had tried to keep Jesus from going to Jerusalem because they were afraid of what the Jews would do to him. They were afraid that he would get killed by the Jews, but they hadn't a clue, his disciples, of what was actually going to happen to him. 
It wasn't the Jews that were the danger to Jesus. It was the wrath of God that was going to be poured out on him on the cross. Jesus goes into the sanctuary, the most holy place, and he is devoured on our behalf. And then he rises from the dead, and he does the unthinkable. He gives to the likes of you and me his own flesh and blood. It is unthinkable. What have we done to deserve this? Who are we to have a God so gracious to us that he would do everything for us, all that is required to save us, all that is required to give us life at the greatest cost imaginable? Who of you would give up your own child to save anyone? And yet that is exactly what God has done for us. He makes us a new creation. Moses had to tame the glory of God. You remember how the story goes. He goes up on the mountain, and Moses talks with God, and when he comes down, his face is radiant, reflecting the glory of God, and even that reflection is too much, and so Moses tames it. He he covers his face with a veil so that it won't terrify the people. That's the problem with God's glory. It makes people flee. But again, God is not satisfied to have his glory tamed or us at a distance, and so what does he do? He doesn't diminish his glory. He doesn't make it lesser. He doesn't dull it. He doesn't keep us at a distance. Instead, he makes us glorious. He makes it so that we can come into his presence and share in his glory. He does this through the forgiveness of sins. This is the one thing that matters most of all. Your sins have been forgiven. Christ died for you. Not a single sin remains. Rejoice and be glad. Your Savior has done all of this for you. Here, in this place, today, this morning, we worship God made flesh. It's not just a spectacle. It's not a quirk of theology. It's not a cultural thing. It's not a family thing. It's not just nice sentiments. It is something we can do even when there's no snow outside. It is something we can do because it is true, regardless of the season, regardless of the weather, regardless of how you feel, it is true. Your Savior has been born. Our one and only and certain hope. As surely as Christ was raised from the dead, you will live eternally. The goodness and the loving kindness of God has appeared. Who will ascend his holy mountain? Who can draw near to God? Only those who have clean hands and a pure heart, which is precisely what he wants to give to you. To God alone be all glory now and forever. Amen.